Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. State solution, U.S. President Trump says the government is the, quote, last resort on testing. Freeing France, the French Prime Minister announcing that nation's reopening plan at this hour. And chasing coronavirus, we speak to the man known as the master virus hunter. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome, as always, to our first movers around the globe. As always, to wherever you are, I hope you are staying safe and you are healthy. I do want to begin today's show by telling you that for all the suffering and the heartache that is still being felt around the world, more than 900,000 people have now recovered from COVID-19 worldwide. We've successfully flattened the curve in much of the United States and in Europe, following on from Asia, of course, too. And that is a huge milestone in this global battle. And I do think we need to keep reiterating that and keep focusing on the good news here, too, now at this hour. As I mentioned, France expects to become just the latest country to ease its lockdown measures. We'll bring you all the details on that. Hopes that governments can reopen economies successfully have certainly helped drive sentiment, I think, in financial markets and stock futures, as you can see on the screen, are green once again. Key today, though, guidance about the future or lack of it. I have to say 3M, Xerox and PepsiCo all withdrawing their 2020 guidance. Companies simply have no visibility as to what happens next. We'll be talking to PepsiCo live here on First Move in just a few moments' time to get their sense of what they can tell us, even as they withdraw guidance. Something else to keep an eye on as well. U.S. crude, hugely volatile on low volume once again today. That follows Monday's almost 25% drop. The British oil major BP saw profits plummet in the first quarter. The CEO, in fact, calling it a brutal environment, which we've often discussed on the show. Here's the global picture as well for stock markets. Europe, as you can see, is higher. Asia was a mixed bag. Hong Kong, though, rising more than 1% as civil servants there get the go-ahead to return to work next week, too. Another positive sign of the global restart. But as we've discussed many times on the show, testing times require testing measures and more testing capabilities are needed. That is where we begin today's drivers with the White House saying the federal government is the supplier of last resort, quote, on COVID-19 testing. One official telling CNN the goal is for each state to test at least 2 percent of its residents. John Harwood joins us now on this story. John, 2 percent is interesting. Is that enough? And over what time period, I think, will be the question. But what is the White House doing behind the scenes to ensure that all the supplies to the states are required? Because I think this is a critical angle here, too. Well, I think what the White House is doing, Julia, is responding to some of the pressure it's been getting from governors and from the press coverage of this issue from public health authorities. Everyone agrees that the key to getting on top of the virus and being able to safely and confidently reopen the economy is a huge ramp up in testing. The administration uh, has kept its distance so far, indicating that that's a uh, priority for the states. But as the uh, drumbeat for more testing has increased, so has 
the federal and the White House and the administration involvement. Last week, they said that they were going to invoke the Defense Production Act to increase the production of swabs. Yesterday, the White House came and talked about a testing blueprint to assist states. Question is, do they get pushed further by Congress to take a more, uh, uh, to grab the reins more fully uh, to try to make sure that we have more testing? Vice President Pence said yesterday, Julia, that uh, we're going to be at 2 million tests per week uh, by May. That is somewhat higher uh, than what we have right now, but it's way below. Uh, what uh, public health authorities think is necessary to uh, be able to deter outbreaks if they uh, uh, occur in the fall when the virus returns. Uh, there's a presumption that it will uh, calm during the summer. Um, and as for that 2% goal that you mentioned, the question is 2% how often? Uh, mm. You've tested <laughs> nearly 2% of the U.S. population so far, but that's going to ha have to happen over and over and over again to monitor the spread of this virus. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I was asking about the time period here, 2 percent of what and when, quite frankly. What about ensuring the supply chain here? Because I think this is a critical part of it as well. We've heard from various experts that it comes down to swab availability, reagent availability, even just the little capsules that you have the reagent in as well. Again, we come back to this idea of the reason why it needs to be done at a national level, a federal level, is to ensure that the supply chain is there and wherever it needs to be at whatever given moment. It sounds like we're not approaching that kind of strategy. We are not. Uh, what we're doing is the federal government is piecemeal saying we're going to help with this and that. Uh, I mentioned the swabs last week. Um, but they haven't gone as far as what, say, Democrats have been insisting upon, a pandemic testing board nationally, uh, something that indicates a level of mobilization and control at the federal level to make sure tests get where they need to be. Uh, Congress is pushing. They put $25 billion in the bill uh, for small business assistance that uh, was passed into law, signed into law by the president last week. They're now pushing for more in the next piece of legislation. Uh, and given the way the White House uh, under pressure has retreated, I would expect them to take a greater role, uh, if not the full uh, charge of the situation that uh, some people are demanding. Yeah, we need more clarity, don't we, on what their forecasts are for testing availability, even if they're not controlling the process. And I think, to your point, John, the pressure is only going to build on this White House to be clear about what the game right. plan is. Yeah. John Harwood, thank you so much for that. All right. While we're talking about this, let me give you the latest on coronavirus cases worldwide. There are now more than 3 million infections. That's according to John Hopkins University. At least 212,000 people have now lost their lives as a result of COVID-19. However, and I will keep reiterating this, I want to tell you that the total number of COVID-recovered patients is now 902,129. Every person matters. Countries around the world are taking advantage of the slowing infection rates to restart their economies. New Zealand eased into a less restrictive lockdown on Tuesday. 75% of the economy has reopened and citizens can now buy takeouts and they can also hold funerals. In Spain this morning, the government is discussing the de-escalation of one of Europe's toughest lockdown regimes. Children are only now being allowed outside for a limited time after being kept indoors for six weeks. 
France, too, now unveiling plans to unwind a strict six-week lockdown. Melissa Bell is in Paris for us. Not a moment too soon, Melissa, I know, for, for the people there. But what exactly are we expecting this restriction measure uh, release to look like and over what time period? Well, Edouard Philippe, the French Prime Minister, has just gone to his feet, Julia, in front of the National Assembly to outline the plan for the deconfinement, as it's known here in France. Because in many respects, locking a country down is almost the easy part where you consider it. It is announcing and figuring out how you're going to unlock it, how you're going to get it back to business as usual, and what stages you're going to follow, what parts of the population are going to be about out, allowed out, how businesses are going to get back to, be, get, get back to work without compromising the progress that's been made uh, in terms of fighting the pandemic. That is the tricky balance, uh, really, the governments are looking at now and the questions that countries like France, with the fourth highest death rate so far uh, from this disease, are looking at. And you mentioned how keen people are to work out how they're going to get back to their life as usual. We've been watching on French media the travels of the French Prime Minister from uh, his base in Paris to the National Assembly, everyone watching his words uh, to see what he has to say. Now, the difficulty is uh, for him, uh, we know that deconfinement, that the end or the beginning of the end of this partial lockdown is due on May 11th. The question is exactly how it's going to happen. We understand it's going to be in stages. We don't know yet whether things like masks will be obligatory in public. These are questions that he has yet uh, to answer. When will schools open? When will businesses open? What parts of the population will be allowed out again? And of course, this is the very delicate balance that he's had to strike in preparing this speech today and this plan, Julia. On one hand, you have uh, the fight against COVID-19 that appears to be beginning to bear its fruit here in France with a number of people in hospitals steadily declining for the last two weeks. And yet that hit that the second largest economy in the Eurozone is taking, continuing to get worse and worse. Already, we know that the French economy is going to be set back 8% in 2020. We saw the highest rise in unemployment figures in March. Uh, a, a record was set. So they're really that pressure of bringing the economy back online, of getting the country back uh, to business is really quite great. So we're, we're looking to hear what those measures are going to be and exactly how France uh, will get back to business as usual. But they've been very clear. It's not going to happen quickly. It's not going to happen all at once. Uh, it's going to be staggered and it's going to take a long time for this country as for so many others, Julia, to get back to anything like what they were before. Absolutely. And we're watching live pictures now as uh, those plans begin being given to us in detail. Melissa, I'm just looking at your backdrop, Paris in springtime. It's so beautiful. Just people want to get back out there and enjoy it. But to your point, exactly. We, we just have to do this slowly and, and carefully and make sure uh, lives are protected at the same time. And that's the delicate balance. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for uh, joining us there from Paris. All right, to our next driver, HSBC's first quarter profit falling nearly 50% from a year ago. This, as Europe's largest bank sets aside $3 billion in bad loan provisions. Anna Stewart joins us now with all the details on this. Anna, and we've heard this from many of the big banks, particularly those that are consumer-facing, that they're just having to insure against the damage to consumers wrought by the period that we're going through here. Yes, and HSBC is such an interesting to look at, given the bulk of its mm. earnings are in Asia and in China specifically, where the virus began. You mentioned profit for tax slumping by nearly half for the first quarter. And that, that um, all important provisions for bad loans, that's the number to really watch with the banks uh, during the pandemic. Up fourfold for the first quarter compared to the last. So that's up to $3 billion. It was interesting when they discussed what that would be for the whole year. The, the range that they're estimating is between 7 and $11 billion. And they said that largely depends on the length 
and depth of recessions around the world, it's very difficult for them to say. They also cited oil prices. They also had a huge impairment charge in Singapore. They wouldn't give much detail on that. Doing a bit of a whip round of analysts, though, despite all those gloomy numbers, many were actually quite impressed that the bank was able to absorb such a hefty charge onto their balance sheet, which still looks fairly strong. General consensus, I would say, is that this is a bank that can weather the storm, but that storm will get a lot worse. It's hard to see how much worse it will get, not least if you just consider, you know, low interest rates going forward as all those fixed uh, fixed term rates sort of start to drop off. Julia? This is a super tanker of a bank To your point in particular, we know that coming into this, they were looking at a a more focused Asia pivot. They warned back in February that 35,000 people could be losing their jobs. So just in light of the new normal that we face ourselves in and looking at it through a prism of COVID-19, what are they saying about those restructuring efforts and, of course, the people that they were set to let go? I think it's extraordinary that you and I were talking about this only in February. It feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, That big restructuring plan, those 35,000 jobs that were going to be cut, that is all on ice now. So that is on hold. Fantastic news for the employees who, of course, don't want to be looking for jobs uh, in this environment. Not such good news for the shareholders, of course, who are welcoming this big restructuring plan. Not much good news in here, really, for shareholders at all. Already the suspension of the dividend and being questioned on that on the analyst call today very little visibility as to when there will be a dividend, probably not this year. They won't make that decision until much, much later in the year or even next year. So looking ahead, it just doesn't look that good. But as we say, this is a bank that is a super tanker, as you said. It's got a strong balance sheet. It can weather the storm, but it's not going to be to many shareholders' liking. No, but bigger issues to deal with, quite frankly, in the short term. Anna Stewart, great analysis. Thank you so much for that. Now, speaking of super tankers, also reporting a big fall in profits today, BP. It comes as the United States Oil Fund, a popular investment fund geared to track the price of oil, said it would reduce its holdings of short-term oil contracts this week. The move sending U.S. crude prices plunging again, as you can see, down some 4.6 percent there. John Defteris is with us. John, let's talk about that fund first, because my understanding was they're shifting out of contracts for June delivery based on the pressures that we saw on the negative prices coming into the end of the prior month's contract and pushing them out. They're just trying to buy themselves some time here. Yeah, they don't want to be in the near and present and right. that danger, uh, Julia, if you will. Uh, and they're saying they don't want the front contract. Uh, and it sounds very much like a sovereign fund, the U.S. oil fund. But of course, it is an exchange traded fund and one that's very powerful. So this had that shock to the market. I tell you, Julia, this price right now is misleading. Uh, nine hours ago, when I started on the air, uh, we had a drop of 15 percent in Asia uh, for WTI and 5 percent for Brent. So it's starting to feel a little bit like seller's fatigue. Right. Uh, but we can't ignore the obvious right now. And this is concern about the glut. Uh, there's worries about this drying up in terms of a place to store the oil in the United States in uh, four to six weeks, even less in Cushing, Oklahoma. We have some video here offshore of Los Angeles. There's an estimated 80 super tankers. You were talking about the super tankers with Anna right now, floating around the world, holding two million barrels uh, in each hull, uh, 160 million floating around the sea. We've never seen that before. Our Richard Quest spoke to the former COBP, uh, John Brown, who decided to make a comparison to the 1985 and 1986 bus. We talked about it last week. Uh, here's the reason why. Let's take a listen. I see it 
certainly for the the period that we can focus on uh, go, staying down, inventories have to be absorbed, demand has to go up, and generally people have to be feel confident that they can uh, conduct their lives in the way that they did before coronavirus, and the producers have to be very disciplined. We never seem to run out of oil. We certainly run out of demand. You could run out of de demand here, and this uh, demand destruction that we've seen so far. And the reason he talked about the 1980s, Julia, and this is fascinating, it took 15 years to get back to an average price of 30 to $40 a barrel in today's price. So he's saying if you're not disciplined, this is what could happen if you overinvest and try to manipulate the market with only cuts. You have to be sincere about the cuts and sustain going forward, also for the IOCs as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then for the big majors as well, they're perhaps in a better position than some of the smallest oil and gas players. But I mean, the CEO of BP today calling it a brutal mm. environment. And we're seeing that playing out with these majors numbers. BP the first today. Yeah, the BP, the first today, uh, it made a profit of $800 million, but with a special accounting procedure uh, for the cost of supplies. And that's down 67% versus last year, uh, about $2.5 billion. Uh, no surprise, Julie, we started the year at uh, $70 a barrel, uh, and we're trading at Brent at least uh, just around $20 a barrel. Uh, you talked about guidance at the tar uh, top of your program here. Bernard Looney, the new CEO, gave some guidance on demand destruction, saying in the second quarter, he thinks that's going to average uh, negative 16 million barrels, uh, about half of where we are today, negative 29, negative 30. So he's thinking it could be even spilling into the third quarter. They preserved the dividend, 10 and a half cents a share. Many were worried about that because of the news from Norway's Equinor uh, last week, the first major to do so. And another COVID-19 kind of spill off here. You know, BP's had this target for net zero emissions by 2050, he said, even with this price of oil, there is no reason not to accelerate that push and even hit it earlier, uh, that the investments and demand from the public require us to diversify the portfolio into renewables at a more aggressive pace. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because for some of the other big nations right now, the need to diversify mm. looks very low given how cheap oil prices are. But, hmm, John Defterius, thank you so much for that. Yes. Now, Speaking of guidance, the head of the Tokyo Olympic Games is warning the event may be cancelled if the pandemic is not over by next summer. Tokyo 2020 President Yoshiro Mori made the remarks in an interview. It's the strongest indicator yet that the future of the Games, which have been postponed, of course, to July 2021, may also have to be postponed again. However, Mori says they're still working towards holding the event next year. The uncertainty, of course, is key. Coming up on First Move, the vice chairman of PepsiCo is next to see how staying at home is affecting consumption. And, of course, another company that pulled their guidance as well. And later, how to bring about a retail revival. What needs to be changed about the way we shop? How do you protect both your workers and your consumers in the post-coronavirus era? That's next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move live from New York. We're on track for a higher open for U.S. stock markets this morning. The major average is set to rise for a third straight session. In fact, that even as more corporate heavyweights withdraw their 2020 guidance. Financial stocks are once again set to rally. They were the outperformers yesterday and so helping these pre-market gains. Just to give you a stock check of where we are after Monday's advance, the Nasdaq, the tech-heavy sector, now down less than 3% year-to-date. The S&P is at levels not seen since March 10th, and the Dow is once again above 24,000. The wall of liquidity provided by central banks, I think a direct contrast to what we're hearing about the fundamentals PepsiCo, one of the corporate giants, withdrawing its 2020 guidance today, that due to the uncertainties posed by COVID-19. But there's good news, too. First quarter revenues beat estimates as consumers stocked up for weeks of lockdown. Joining us now, Hugh Johnson. He's vice chairman and chief financial officer at PepsiCo. So fantastic to uh, to have you with us. It is a a terribly uncertain uh, situation that many are facing right now. But the, the benefit is to your business, we have seen... Uh, consumers stocking up on both beverages and snacks around the world. Yeah, good morning, Julia. It's nice to be with you all as well. Uh, Yeah, it was a a very strong first quarter for us. Revenue was up 7.9%. But even uh, as we've estimated out the impact of COVID, uh, our revenue growth was in in excess of 5%. So we continue to see an acceleration in our business performance. Really, a couple of big consumer trends going on uh, as people are sheltering in place. Number one, uh, they're eating more breakfast and they're eating more substantial breakfasts at home. And and that's been terrific for our Quaker oatmeal business and for our Aunt Jemima pancake business. Uh, And the second is, as they graze during the day, they they tend to snack on Frito-Lay products more uh, more than others. So it's really lifted that business. We, We see those trends sustaining for a good period of time. Beverages also experienced a benefit in the first quarter, but those were more stocking up of things like Gatorade and water. And while we did see a nice benefit in the first quarter, uh, we expect and have already seen that to some degree tailing off in the second quarter. So a a bit of a tale of two cities, but overall uh, a good story for PepsiCo. Yeah. Talk to me about the challenges of predicting what happens next. It's a problem for all businesses. But to your point, you are seeing shifts in consumer behavior. There are other challenges where your products are sold perhaps in restaurants, in stores, in in cinemas, too. And we lack clarity on what reopening for economies around the world actually looks like in practice where the consumer is concerned. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It is very difficult to predict. And that, that's part of why we uh, suspended our, our guidance for the year. Uh, as, as we evaluated, we, we realized there were just so many scenarios and so many things that were far out of our control that it, it was impossible to, to give good guidance for the year. Now, as you might expect, we, we have an enormous number of scenarios inside the company, anywhere from a a V-shaped recovery to a checkmark recovery to a U-shaped recovery to an L recovery. Um, and and we're, the, the important point for us is we're really just prepared for any of those. So when, the, when we start to see people exit from their homes, when we see them come back into, into the outlets that right now are either reduced or shut down, uh, we're going to be in a great position to serve those customers and serve those consumers with products. Uh, until that time, Clearly, it's, it's going to be more at-home consumption. The, the good news, as I said, for us is our, our portfolio is relatively balanced. Where the food business is quite resilient through this, it's the beverage business 
that tends to be a bit larger in restaurants and, and larger gatherings like movie theaters and entertainment venues. And obviously that, those businesses are, are operating at, at low capacity if, if operating at all. Yeah, it's interesting as far as investors are concerned, to, to your point, as you sort of map out the different options here in terms of what kind of recovery we look like, you're still confident enough to maintain the dividend, to keep going with a multi-billion dollar buyback program as well. That's a strong message, I think, that you're sending to investors today about the health of the company. It is, and, and we, we're fortunate to be in a position where we have a very strong balance sheet, and we, we manage very conservatively and very prudently. Uh, we've been in the debt markets now uh, a couple of times, both uh, the long-term debt as well as the commercial paper markets, uh, and we're able to secure, uh, secure debt funding at, at quite attractive rates and for extended maturity. So I, I think that speaks to the confidence that, that debt investors have in, in the management of PepsiCo and also in the strong, strong cash flows of the company. So given we do have very strong liquidity, we made the decision that we are maintaining our, our share repurchase, and we think that's an important message to investors. Talk to me about workers, because we've heard concerns about supply chains, about the sheer ability to protect workers that are working in factories and are making sure that we as consumers get the supplies and the groceries that we want. How are you going about protecting your workers? Yeah, we're doing a lot, candidly, and at considerable expense, but absolutely the best money that we can spend is to protect our workers. And that's true both of the people who bring the product to the grocery stores as well as those who work in our manufacturing plants and who work in our warehouses. Uh, we're all, of course, practicing social distancing. Uh, we are using per, uh, PPE in order to, uh, to enable people to, to work safely as they, as they can. Uh, and, and we've taken considerable other steps in terms of uh, protecting people if they need to be out either for personal health reasons or for family reasons as well. So, you know, a company like PepsiCo, the, the real strength of the company is our frontline workers, the people who make, move, and sell our products. And they're an important part of the food supply chain. So we're, we're doing basically everything we can think of to make sure we keep those workers safe. Yes, it's another front line. There are essentials. Hugh, great to chat with you. Thank you so much. And um, I wish you and uh, your workforce well at this moment too. Hugh Johnson, Vice Thanks. Chairman and Chief Financial Officer at PepsiCo there. All right, coming up on First Move, how retail stores, exactly tied to what we were just discussing across the United States, are preparing to reopen. The head of the National Retail Federation joins us next. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stock markets are open, up and running for trading this Tuesday. As expected, a higher open for stock markets, despite that sell-off and the volatility that we've seen in the energy markets, specifically U.S. crude. And, of course, as I've mentioned, new signs that companies have little idea where profits and sales are likely headed this year as nations around the world begin the process of reopening, engaging what consumer behavior looks like. For now, though, I think central bank cash continues to be all that really matters here. And we are seeing gains across the board. PepsiCo, Xerox and manufacturing giant 3M all withdrawing 
their 2020 guidance today. Caterpillar withdrew its guidance earlier this year. It missed earnings expectations by a wide margin. Claire Sebastian joins us now to discuss some of these important changes. Let's start with 3M, manufacturing giant. Also, our viewers may have heard of this one because they, let's say, tangled with the White House earlier this year and the Defence Production Act over the manufacture of those N95 masks. What was 3M saying about the numbers today? Yeah, so not as bad as it could have been for for Mm. 3M, Julia. Sales were up 2.7%. Profits were down uh, by the same amount. But this isn't just about the masks that we've been hearing about. This company is a sprawling conglomerate. It makes everything from the sort of post-it notes that you find on your desk to to equipment to repair cars to tools used in mining all across the board. And some of their segments were up uh, and some of their segments were down. I think it's interesting... Uh, sort of to look at that a bit, given given the times we're in, things like personal safety, of course, were up, drug delivery, food safety, home improvement, interestingly, uh, was up. But they saw declines in, obviously, automotive, transportation, oral care, interestingly, aerospace uh, and stationery uh, and office supplies. Again, the, the, the humble post-it note. But, but they are, you know, this is another of the themes that we're seeing across companies. They are preserving cash. They have suspended share buybacks. They're doing things like a global hiring freeze, reducing capex, uh, and they are raising cash as well to sort of preserve their liquidity going forward because, of course, they are one of the companies, as you said, that's withdrawn guidance. They don't know uh, how this is going to go, how this is affecting uh, their company. And meanwhile, of course, Julia, they reiterated that they are ramping up the production of those respirator masks. They're, 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 they've already reached 100 million a month. Uh, they're investing to double that. Uh, they're going to be up to 50 million a month in the U.S., by June, and they are saying that they're not just doing this on a supply-demand basis. They are prioritizing 90% of those supplies to healthcare. But they did, given the, the tangle with the White House earlier uh, this year, say that they thank them for their help, uh, especially when it comes to importing uh, some of those products from China. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know what people are really listening out for. But to your point, and it's a very good one, this is a far bigger business than just producing masks at this moment in time. Claire, let's talk about Caterpillar, because as I look around the world, the construction industry is one of those that governments seemingly think they can get started pretty early. But I just wonder what the prospects are going forward for construction and, and commercial real estate in particular. Sort of challenging times for these guys. Really challenging. Caterpillar, in a way, sort of a heavier uh, industrial conglomerate, if you can put it that way, than than 3M exposed uh, heavily to construction, things like oil and gas, all of these industries uh, that are under stress. And Caterpillar saying uh, today that their sales are down 21%, profits down 39%. They have also said that they obviously withdrew their guidance in March. They didn't issue any more today. Things are just too uncertain. But they did say they expect things to be worse in the second quarter than they were in the first quarter. Again, the, the same themes, preserving cash, cutting costs. They are trying to sort of stabilize the business through this. And don't forget, this is a company heavily reliant on, on Asia, and particular China. We've seen a construction boom. That was a particular weak spot for this company. Yeah. Oh, and I apologize to our viewers because we lost you a little bit there in particular. But you raise a great point that the shutdowns didn't happen until the back end of March. And this is the real quarter, I think, that we have to worry about. And of course, we lack guidance on what that looks like. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, 
Speaking of reopening and getting back to work and to consuming, the National Retail Federation unveiled new guidelines for reopening stores across the United States. The plan suggests stores enact social distancing and hygiene measures. The NRF also urges governors to issue uniform and statewide protocols. The group says the retail sector supports one in four U.S. jobs with more than 50 million workers. And this is key. Matthew Shea is the president and CEO of the National Retail Federation, and he joins us now. Matthew, great to have you with us and uh, good to see you this morning. It's a phased blueprint, a phased protocol of what you think works over what time horizon. For many grocers around the country, they're already in sort of phase two of having to deal with customers and protect workers. How quickly can we see this implemented in your view? Well, Julia, you know, if you think back over the last uh, six to eight weeks in the United States, uh, many retailers have really been the economic first responders. They've, they've kept their doors open. They've been serving consumers. They've been doing it safely, protecting their employees, um, operating their supply chains, their distribution centers. And that really gives us a roadmap for how we can help the rest of the economy, the parts of the economy that have not been able to remain open during these last eight weeks in the U.S., and we really have learned a lot from those companies that were on the leading edge of this. And so that's really the basis for the NRF's operation Open Doors was to take the things that we learned and the experiences of those many companies that served customers and help apply that to those other companies as they begin to face some of those same challenges and opportunities. What are you hearing from retailers in some of the states that are in the process of reopening? Some of our surveys at CNN show that Consumers are worried. They're afraid that there isn't appropriate testing, that they're not sure about their safety. Are, are the retailers that you represent equally afraid for their workers and, and protecting consumers too? I think the number one concern that uh, all retailers share is concern both for their uh, associates and for the customers that they have the privilege of serving every day. And, and that's why they've developed uh, protocols, procedures, that have allowed them in many cases to remain open uh, during the coronavirus challenge. And those are the kinds of experiences, the lessons that can be applied uh, in other settings as we see the United States begin to reopen. And of course, with the diversity of this economy, with the diversity of our population and demographic centers, uh, there are gonna be many factors that are gonna affect different regions of the country in different ways. And so that's why what we created with Operation Open Doors is really a set of guidelines that uh, individual companies can decide to choose and use as they fit for their business and for their uh, customers. What about legal risk here, Matthew? Is that being discussed and how you go about perhaps talking to Congress and saying we need to be protected in some way from class action lawsuits, potentially, if people get sick and accuse businesses that they caught the virus while they were in their retail establishment or in their hotel or whatever it is? It's going to be a challenge, surely, going forward. Yeah, uh, Julie, I was invited to be a member of the president's uh, committee on reopening the economy and was on a call with the president the other day and members of the, uh, the retail uh, industry working group. And that issue has been discussed. And, and that's an issue that I think has implications for many businesses uh, across the United States and in other parts of the world. There are really a couple of things that we're concerned about, uh, obviously, as we see other parts of the economy reopen. Uh, and come back to business you know, in the new normal. Uh, one of those is avoiding the kinds of challenges we faced as the economy closed 
with the inconsistent application by states, by counties, by jurisdictions and cities that impacted uh, companies that are trying to do business in multiple locations. So as we reopen, we don't want to face those same kinds of inconsistencies. And then similarly, the issue that you mentioned uh, about litigation liability, there ought to be protection for companies that are uh, following appropriate guidelines, that are taking their direction from medical professionals that can demonstrate that they're complying with and regularly auditing uh, the behavioral practices and procedures that will prevent them from the kind of frivolous uh, sorts of litigation that could really paralyze the economy and uh, have a real chilling effect as we try to reopen things here in the US. We mentioned, and it is a challenge in the introduction, that this is millions of jobs. This sector represents millions of jobs in the United States. How many of those jobs do you think don't come back at the end of this because consumer behavior has changed? We're reticent. We go more online, perhaps, than visiting stores. How many of those jobs are at risk, Matthew, in your mind? Well, you know, Julie, as, as you mentioned on the way in, uh, the retail industry in the United States is responsible for creating one in four jobs, more than 52 million throughout the retail ecosystem and the supply chain. And we've seen consumer behavior, uh, and you and I have discussed this before, seen consumer behavior patterns evolving pretty rapidly over the last five years as we went to mobile, as companies have uh, put out new methods of fulfillment, distribution, uh, and serving customers digitally. And so I think as we come out of this, you're going to see those kinds of trends really accelerate. You're going to see customers becoming more comfortable uh, with different kinds of fulfillment options, uh, shopping and, and, and behaving much more digitally, uh, fluently than they were previously. And that will have implications as we see the evolution in the next phase of our economy. And there will be winners and losers from that, as there always are. And I think that puts a premium on those companies that are really thinking digitally, that have uh, very creative fulfillment options, that have a sophisticated supply chain, and that are really serving customers with a, a high level of engagement and a real brand commitment. Yeah, great for Amazon, the death knell perhaps for the shopping mall. Well, we'll see. I think that's gonna continue to evolve. And you know, we are social creatures. Uh, I think all of us that have been uh, locked down for a while, many of us are very fortunate and very blessed relative to some of the real tragedies that have occurred across this yeah. country and around the world. But many of us will wanna get back out and socialize. So I think we're going to see that come back, and uh, I think that'll take different forms, but we're all looking forward to the next phase and getting there safely, and we hope Operation Open Doors can help us do that. Yes, I am one of those that is very much looking forward to getting back to life. Matthew yeah. Shea, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Nice to see you, Julia. Thank Likewise, you. Likewise, as Thanks. always. Thank you. All right, still to come here on First Move. As the origins of the novel coronavirus remain unclear, a U.S. scientist known as the Master Virus Hunter is teaming up with Chinese colleagues to try and trace it. We speak to him next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. and Chinese researchers are working together to trace the origins of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. One of those team members is world-renowned Dr. Ian Lipkin, who helped develop rapid testing for SARS back in 2003. His team at Columbia University have also just received approval from U.S. regulators for a clinical trial to determine whether the plasma collected from COVID-19 survivors can help protect healthcare workers and others. 
is Dr. Ian Lipkin, the director of the Center for Infection and Immunity at Columbia University, also known as the Master Virus Hunter, now joins us. Uh, Dr. Lipkin, great to have you with us. That is some title, but from what I've read from your CV, oh boy, have you earned it. Talk to me about the work that you're doing just to try and understand first the origins of this virus. There's been speculation about a wet market in Wuhan, whether it came from a lab. What have you discovered so far? What can you tell us? Well, I first heard about uh, this unusual pneumonia mid-December, mm. and the agent was identified at the very end of December. I learned about it really on the 31st, and as people know, the first sequences came out on the 10th of January, uh, and rapidly we got to diagnostics and thinking about vaccines and a whole range of interventions. Nobody really knows where it came from. Initially, the thought was that it came from this wet market, and by analogy to SARS, the prediction was that we would find an animal reservoir for this virus that would be present in this market. Uh, this was never found, however, and indeed when people went looking for footprints of the virus, what they found was that there was there were some areas that were actually in a side of the market where there weren't any mammals, which made it unlikely that that was the original source. There may still be a, some sort of connection with the market. We can't exclude the possibility that people were engaged in wild animal trade who also, you know, were exposed outside, somehow came into the market and exchanged this virus with some of their their counterparts. So there may be a link. It's just not clear that it's a direct link. We also don't know when this virus first moved from the animal's uh, kingdom into people. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to focus on at present. So this is a collaboration that started really with a grant from the Chinese Academy of Sciences by Professor Lu Dehao Lu at Sun Yat-sen University, who's an expert in One Health, that is to say, uh, you know, things that move from animals into people. And he's been joined on this by Gao Fu, George Gao, who's the director of the national CDC there, and Chen Zhu, who's the former minister of health. Uh, and uh, we're very eager to see what we can learn by studying blood samples that were collected in earlier time points, looking at samples from bats to see if we can find sequences that are even closer than what's already been described. And my, my thought is we're probably going to find that this virus were circulating well before we became aware of it. Wow. So it may not have even originated in, in Wuhan itself. We don't know. I mean, this mm. is something that we're only just beginning to study. But just very quickly on this, because I do want to talk to you about the plasma um, studies. Yeah. Do you believe that the Chinese are being open with you? I called it a collaborative project, but do you believe that they're being open about the information that you're getting? I've been working with these people for 17 years. That's a right. long time. And, uh, and I trust them and they trust me, which is why we continue to work together. Now, is it possible that there's something that may have happened that some people knew about that they didn't share with other people, never made it to my attention? Sure. Uh, it's a very large country. What is it? 1.6 billion people. So, but when you compare this with 2002, 2003, you know, it's dramatically different. Now, you wanted to talk a little bit about plasma therapy. I do. Tell me, please. Yeah. So the idea is that when you recover from an infection, you have an immune response, which is how you clear that viral infection. And if you can take antibodies from people who've recovered and give those to people who are at risk or have disease, 
you may be able to change the course of the disease or even prevent infection in the first place. So it's a stopgap measure until we have drugs and until we have a vaccine. Uh, we've enrolled 17 patients thus far at Columbia, and um, we're very eager to see the results. We'll find out. It's already being used, though, very quickly, isn't it? I mean, plasma from those that have recovered is still is being used right now for, for infected patients. Yes, but it's being used primarily in what we call a compassionate basis. Right. And when you use something on that basis, you don't really know if it works. You can try to historically look at back and say, here's a patient who was in similar straits. This one improved and this one didn't. But that's not the same thing as conducting a randomized trial where you don't make a decision as to who's going to get plasma and who's going to get the alternative. That's what's really required to sort out what's meaningful. We have yeah. to do that with everything, with drugs, with devices, uh, and plasma therapy is no different. So I understand the eagerness to sort of do everything you can, but sometimes we wind up doing harm. So we have to be very careful when we introduce new drugs and new therapies. It has to be done in a controlled fashion. Yeah, we need that control group. Dr. Ian Lipkin, so great to have your wisdom on the show today. Please keep in touch because um, we'd love to speak to you again about your progress. And I'm glad to know you're looking so much better as well because I know you suffered with COVID-19 yourself. So um, keep well, sir, great. and keep recovering. <laughs> Good to see. Thank you, sir. Stay in touch. All right, we're going to take a break. A birthday to remember for this man. Britain salutes Captain Tom Moore for the millions he raised to help support healthcare workers. That's next. Welcome back. Earlier today, Britain fell silent to remember frontline healthcare heroes who've lost their lives saving others in this pandemic. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who was himself treated for coronavirus, led the nation in a mark of respect. 82 NHS workers and 16 who worked in social care are known to have lost their lives. Again, first move thanks all those frontline workers, our healthcare heroes all around the world. Now, do you remember the Second World War veteran who raised millions of dollars for Britain's National Health Service? People from all over the world wanted to thank him for his efforts. So they sent him more than 100,000 birthday cards. Wow, look at this. Tom Moore celebrated his 100th birthday by walking 100 laps in his garden. In all, he raised more than $36 million. And by the way, that's nearly 6,000% over his target. Yes, we calculated it. To Captain Tom and to everyone out there raising money or fighting to save lives, we salute you. Thank you for watching. Stay safe, take care, and we'll see you tomorrow.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.